0: You're listening to the O'Reilly Radar Podcast. I'm your host, Jen Webb. In this week's episode, Tim O'Reilly sits down with Google X's Astro Teller. Their wide-ranging conversation covers Moonshots, the relationship between technology and society, and the learning process for hardware. Enjoy the show. So Astro, you just gave a talk here at our solid conference uh, entitled Moonshots for the Physical World about your work with uh, Google X. Uh, It seemed to me there's some irony in that the original moonshot was a moonshot for the physical world. Can you talk a little bit about that? Uh, you know, We're in such a software world for
1: so long, the hardware and the physical world are coming back. Yeah, that was the point of the title of the talk, was to highlight the reality that moonshots, at least as we mean them, don't just mean doing what I'm excited about doing somebody told me recently that they're working on better frozen yogurt at uh, for the cafes at google and this is their moonshot <laughs> and i didn't want to discourage them but what i was thinking was that's really not what we mean by a moonshot right. and i guess a moonshot isn't required to have a physical aspect to it but solving really big problems in the world tends to require some kind of contact with the physical world that's non-trivial, right?
0: And also that notion—I mean, people who didn't grow up—that seemed impossible. You know, when they set out to to go land on the moon, you know, we were still just barely out of the propeller plane age. You know, that was so far ahead of what was possible, and it pushed so much learning. And I think that, to me, is you know what i think lars moonshot it's like something
1: that really brings out capabilities that we didn't know we have yeah and, and a way of of ask or of answering the question what is it that google x works on would be to say we only work on those things that both meet the criteria they look impossible and that we think we've seen a perspective from which they might not be and mm-hmm. of course they have to matter too right yes stuff
0: that matters absolutely so um, can you kind of give us a list of some of the, the hot
1: projects that you're working on? Sure. So there are some projects that grew up inside of Google X but have since graduated. So those would be things like the Massive Neural Network Project, uh, which is now embedded in the main part of Google and servicing many of the different aspects of how google functions today or google glass which grew up inside google x but was graduated about six months ago uh, to head towards productization in tony fidel's world mm-hmm. or there's a standalone business in the construction architecture space called flux that came, originally came out of google x but then there are things that are still inside of google x today things like the self-driving cars uh, the contact lenses for um, measuring things about people's bodies while you're wearing the contact lens. Uh, the stratospheric balloon project, Project Loon, uh, Makani, the energy kite, the airborne wind turbine project are. I think, reasonably well-known examples of the kinds of things that we're working on. We just, for example, announced yesterday another one in the life sciences space, working on doing what people have tried, including myself, for several decades to do, which is to get medical-grade information in a wearable body monitor. Mm-hmm. And I would hardly say that we're done, but I think we have taken at least a interesting step past what has been done before. And... That's a very exciting mm-hmm. road. And so those are the kinds of things mm-hmm. that we try to take on.
0: So you know a couple of those examples that you brought up remind me of a couple of other things about the original moonshot, and that was it became a race. And clearly self-driving cars have kicked off that kind of race where all the automakers now are, you you really changed the way people thought about that as something that was possible and so now there are more people trying to do it um i I think that's also true with sort of the high altitude wi-fi uh are are any of the other uh, moonshots sort of kicking off that kind of
1: competitive activity where other people are going whoa we got to do this too i'm not going to say that uh any of them have necessarily kicked that off, but another one that we've been working on for many years and that several years after we started working on it has become a hot topic is uh, unmanned aerial vehicles for package delivery. Mm -hmm. Um, So now, you know, Amazon and DHL and, and others are also working in that same space. But that's something that we've been working on for quite a few mm-hmm. years.
0: So do you think that, that actually that sort of competitive dynamic is a good thing for Moonshots?
1: Absolutely. Yeah. I would be much more worried if we were working on something and nobody seemed excited enough to try to do it also. Yeah. We truly want to make the problem go away. And if we truly want to make the problem go away, well, I'm sure it would be a little bit disappointing not to produce the best solution. That is very secondary to the problem going away in Mm -hmm. our minds. So if someone can make a better self-driving car than we can, good for them, good for the world, seriously.
0: So you said something really important here, uh, which is make the problem go away, and uh, the reason that resonates with me is that there's been a lot of discussion as a result of the self-driving car and other sort of possible futures uh, whether it's ai in the workplace or uh, robots Uh, of, you know, the robots are going to take our jobs. This is, uh, you know, and and the hollowing out of the economy is actually due to technology. And I think that's a fairly pernicious meme. I think the hollowing out of the economy is actually driven by a bunch of financial decisions made on Wall Street, much more than by technology. (laughs) But um, I, I do think that there's something really, really interesting here. When we think about big problems, I think we actually typically create new work because, uh, yes you know let's, let's just imagine a world where there are self-driving cars and taxi drivers and even uber drivers and uh, truck drivers are, are out of work uh, you know th- there's been a lot of scare stories about that and yet it seems to me that when once we have that technology we can start to say well what new problems Are there that we can solve with that technology?
1: Yes, as you point out, sadly, the world is in no danger of running out of problems to work on. Right. We have more than enough problems to keep us busy for hundreds of years. But even putting aside
0: But I think that's super important in this discussion. The policymakers, I think, need to stop talking about creating jobs and they need to start talking about what is the work that we need to do in the world. Because if you do that work, you do create jobs. Yeah, you know, I was struck yeah. by this uh, actually uh, uh, when I went to Mount Vernon, you know, uh, George Washington's uh, you know home, and there was this, you know, all this. Uh, he was really into scientific agriculture, as was Thomas Jefferson, and he had this vision that America could feed the world, and and there was that economic vision of wow, there is something that needs doing. And I kind of feel like that one of the things I love about Google X is, is it is driven by solving problems and those problems actually often do create
1: new opportunities for work. And I completely agree with you about the problems. In addition, when you look at the history of technology and its introduction and what happened in society afterwards, Mm -hmm. technology has functioned in every case in the past as a lever for the human mind or for the human body. So things like, you know, the introduction of spreadsheets destroyed the business the profession of bookkeeping. But because we trained people, we, society, trained people, they became accountants. Mm-hmm. They, they became analysts, and as many jobs as were lost were created, and more work, more productivity was created in the process. The bulldozer took away, in a very analogous way, a lot of jobs from people who were digging with shovels. but. Because we train them to do things like build bulldozers, drive bulldozers, maintain the bulldozers, right. it wasn't a net loss for the economy. I believe that the failure mode we are currently in, to the extent that there's a failure mode, is not the introduction of new technologies, but the failure of our society to train the young people of the world so that they will be prepared to use these more and more sophisticated levers. Yeah, that's right. And, and not just
0: the training of the people, but also the social organization that uses the people. Um, Absolutely. It's very, very interesting. Uh, I, I know that, uh, you know, uh, Sebastian Thrun with Udacity has made a deal with at and to retrain their workers, you know, and here's this thing. We have new capabilities for on-demand education that actually make it easier to retarget people. Right. I was talking also with Stefan Castriel at uh, Upwork, you know, formerly uh, ODesk, Elance, uh, you know about the velocity of job change there and their ability to measure and manage. You know We have all these amazing new technologies to find out uh, you know, what's in demand and then to figure out how do we train people to do it. Uh, actually, I learned just the other day, uh, about this fascinating company called Catalyst IT Services based in Baltimore. It's actually an outgrowth of another company, which is called uh, uh, PEG, which does basically analysis of what skills are required to do various jobs. And they end up deciding they would go after IT services directly. And they're, they're basically, uh, they hire like 15 out of 1,000 people because they do this very powerful skills assessment and training. But apparently, it's you know, they're getting people out of Pizza Hut and placing them in IT jobs after training you know this is amazing you know upskilling of workers by applying technology to figure out if they have the capabilities and then using technology to train them and then fighting them you know, right and that's
1: the virtuous yeah. cycle that technology makes possible yeah exactly yeah
0: so um, kind of moving back to this uh, notion of, of the real world uh, in your talk today you were discussing a little bit uh, what you've learned from Project Loon, but also how you learned it. And you made the point that the way that you do the process can be as important
1: as uh, what you actually get out of it. So maybe you could talk about the learning process for hardware. Yeah, so the, the, the point I was trying to make today was in previous talks that I've given, I've focused on... The idea of failure being the engine for innovation, not being afraid of failure, but seeing it as a learning opportunity, and the value of getting out into the world and testing things earlier rather than later. But that actually doesn't answer the question, what should you do first? Mm -hmm. So what I tried to talk about more today was, in a little bit more detail, the process of when can you put something off for several years? Just punt it. And is that the smart thing to punt or not? So for example, if you can put something off for several years in a big, hard project and the thing that you're putting off is the thing which is most likely in the end to be the reason the whole project doesn't work, it was a horrible idea to put it off. Even if you can sort of put it off and look like you're making progress, it's a ladder to the moon. It's exactly the wrong thing to do. Mm -hmm. On the other hand, if you're very confident that it's just hard work and that you're not going to learn at the end that it's your Achilles heel and you have to be intellectually honest with yourselves about that, then for all, by all means, do find some way to put in a hack if necessary, but put it off as long as possible, because you're not gonna learn anything by doing it. And so I well, was trying- Well, there's also the possibility that someone else will make progress there. Right? Sure, exactly. But you know, uh, let me give you an example that I didn't use in the talk today. I do this frequently with teams where I say, make me a list of the 20 things that you think we should do in order. And they'll come up with their list. And then I say, okay, reorder that list relative to what you think will cause the most learning. Mm-hmm. And invariably, it's a different list. Mm-hmm. And then I say, let's just do the top two things on, on your second list, on the learning list. Mm-hmm. And without fail, what happens is that so much has been learned after those first two things have happened. So the rest of the list? That we have to totally the remake the list.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: That's and then I say to the group, that's why we don't do the first list. That's a really right? great That's a really great lesson. Uh, wow, I want to digest that for a while. That's great. <laughs> so, um, you know, I I gave an example uh, today of the fact that the um, balloon spins freely on its axis,
0: mm-hmm.
1: and I think that was it's a good example for a project a loon of we we can't let it just rotate with the wind because ultimately we need our photovoltaics to point at the sun so we can get full power. We can't just occasionally get a little drive by you know, sun and we need to collimate the conversations, these RF links between the balloons and they have to be pointed at each other very carefully. That doesn't work if they're just sort of freely rotating. We knew that to be the case it's not trivial to let this huge thing, the size of the house freely rotate in the stratosphere while the thing under it doesn't move um, because you have to pass power and data through something that can't have any wires on it and super cold and there's almost no air up there. And, and yet we managed to put it off for several years and just cherry picked other things that we could learn because there were enough ways we could have failed without doing that. Mm -hmm. And I think Thinking through as carefully as possible, what can we put off? How long can we put it off? How well can we decouple different sub teams in the moonshot we're trying to take? Um, Mm -hmm. That, in a sense, is the moonshot itself.
0: Can you talk about the connection between... That approach you just described and Google's OKR process, because it seems to me that there's a at least a common thread here of identifying that thing that is hard that you are really committing to doing. And it, you know, the OKRs doesn't really necessarily focus on learning, but it does seem that it's a very very goal-directed activity uh, that, that cascades through
1: time. It does, and. What I like about the OKR process at Google, which is objective and key results, right. um, is that the average score that we give ourselves across all of Google, if you look at all of our scores, mm-hmm. is you know, all in the order of 70%. Mm-hmm. And I think that's incredibly healthy. It doesn't make sense for mm-hmm. us to... I mean, if we're shooting so high that we never get anything done. It's totally demoralizing. Yeah. And if we're shooting low enough that we always get it done, we definitely could have pushed ourselves
0: harder. Yeah, well, that's how right. I, I and, think I always hated the sort of management by objectives, which a lot of people sort of actually just translate to the new language of OKRs, and that was just the system by which managers rewarded themselves for what they knew they could do. You know? <laughs> what they'd already done in many yeah, cases. Yeah. And, and, and yeah, yeah, mentioned versus that. really kind of pushing, you know, this is something really important so what we've done is also so that order of ordering things in in, in, in in importance, which is not necessarily um you know, just well. This is the biggest thing, so therefore that goes first. It's no, no. This is the critical thing, and and how do you have the intelligence to identify that thing which is most critical,
1: and as you said, that will provide the most learning. Right. So using that analogy, in many ways, Google X is sort of just a distillation of the DNA mm-hmm. uh, of Google, just like mm-hmm. a hothouse for it. Mm-hmm. And I think OKRs is a good example. At Google X, we do audacious goals, mm-hmm. and. You could think of them as OKRs, but by calling them audacious goals, Mm -hmm. these are quarterly goals. Yeah. within a quarter we tend to learn that what we were doing was the wrong thing anyway. Yeah. yeah. Even on a project that continues to move forward. Yeah. Uh, you know, our metrics change. We realized it was the wrong way to talk about what success counted as all kinds of things. But every quarter for the team to say, this is this crazy thing we're going to try to get done by this quarter. And mm-hmm. I think in the history of Google X, we're probably batting something like 20%, not even I bet uh, accomplishment of complete accomplishment of those goals. yeah I think it's well below 20% uh, I like that word. and it doesn't demoralize them because they understand that they're challenging themselves to do something yeah. where there's a pride between the teams, mm-hmm. not in so much in whether they accomplish it or not. But in setting a goal which is so exciting, so seemingly impossible, mm-hmm. that almost is more bragging rights yeah. than w- whether they scored fifty percent or thirty percent afterwards. on Yeah, it. I think that that concept of audaciousness
0: is is really critical. At, at O'Reilly, we're trying to build a process like this, and Laura Baldwin calls them OMGs. Yeah, that's a way to kind of get <laughs> yeah. across. You know, it's that's like good. you want to have that OMG yeah. response to succeeding. Exactly, and. and uh I, I think it's, it's. I think there's a lot to learn from pushing to do really hard things, and I think we as a society need more moonshots, and uh, you know, kind of bringing it back around to the the big policy of, you know, how are we going to create the future we want? Uh, you know, there has to be that sense that we can tackle and succeed
1: at seemingly impossible things rather than, oh, my God, the future is just going to be shitty. Right. And (laughs) one of the reasons that I do some public speaking is because I want to encourage people to feel like that. There is a sense that never gets fully articulated, but it's clearly out there that being that audacious is somebody else's job and somebody else's opportunity. That the big companies tend to act like, well, we don't take risk. We don't do really weird stuff that's outside of our box by 100 miles. That's what little companies do. They have nothing to lose. Mm -hmm. The little companies are like, well, that's not us. The big companies should do it because they've got all the money. We don't have the money to do something hard and weird. The governments are think, well, we did that 50 years ago, maybe when it was the actual moonshot, but we just don't have the money or the stick to to do those kind of things anymore. Academia thinks they're supposed to write the papers about it, but not actually build anything. Yeah. <laughs> everyone thinks it's not their job. And I think it's exactly the opposite. Yeah, I think everyone's job. has it as their job and everyone has it as their opportunity. I think the pace of problems is picking up in the world Mm -hmm. and we owe it to each other and to ourselves to pick up the pace of solving them too. And that's going to require enthusiasm and audaciousness, not panic, but just a sense that we can get out of the incrementalism that sometimes tends to take over how problems get solved.
0: That's great. You know, um, this is really opening up another can of worms, but um, you mentioned government and the, you know, for a long time, you know, government really understood that one of its roles was, in fact, to deal with market failure to tackle problems that the market was just not going to tackle. And uh, you know, there are still pockets where that happens. You know, but if you look at the history of our industry, you know, uh, the original you know, work on computing funded by the government, you know, original work on the internet funded by the government. Uh, and in fact, it's still going on, but people don't really give the government credit because there's so much anti-government, all the work on robotics and, you know, what the came directly out of DARPA. <laughs> exactly. You know, so I guess I want to just put in a plug for a, the government is still doing it. We need to recognize and encourage and and kind of reward government for doing more of that, as opposed to well, those guys a can't do anything. Well, guess what? They did in fact kick off uh, this huge technological innovation in self-driving cars and robotics with the, ch- the DARPA challenges, and they've done amazing things in in uh, you know like the human genome project. So I want to hear it for our collective will to do big things. not just belonging to
1: to companies like Google. Absolutely, almost everything we're working on has a rich history of funded basic science. So the self-driving cars, as you were just alluding to, came directly out of work from DARPA and the DARPA Grand Challenge. Uh, Things like a lot of the original balloon science that we're now standing on the shoulders of, as it were, came out of uh, the U.S. military and other government agencies that were interested in learning things like about the weather, for example. So, you know, we're, I hope, adding some value in each of these areas, but we're not starting from like raw materials and zero learning in any of these cases. I think there there is a gap that Google X and others can help fill between the basic science and sort of straightforward commercialization, but... No amount of filling in that gap could ever replace the funding that has to go on for basic science where you don't yet have a clear goal, because if you don't have that, you know, there's a certain kind of, you know, two standard deviation kind of progress that can be made in straightforward commercialization, maybe four standard deviation kind of progress that can be made in a Google X like environment. But the six standard deviation stuff that happens very rarely, but super critically in academia, it's not going to happen unless people have the freedom to be wrong almost all of the time and to look at things that are even more unlikely than the things that Google X works on. That's great. All right. I think that's a good place to wrap Wonderful. Thank you. Thank you for your time. Thank you.
0: You can reach Tim through his Twitter handle at Tim O'Reilly and Astro through his Twitter handle at Astro Teller. Thank you for joining us. If you like the show, make sure to subscribe through Stitcher, TuneIn, iTunes, or SoundCloud so you never miss an episode.